G'day and welcome back to the Talking Leadership TV podcast series. Our guest today is Sam Traddles. She's an award-winning business owner and author, a speaker and commentator, empowering more Australians to negotiate for better outcomes in any situation. She's the founder of Other Side of the Table. Her vision is to ensure everyone knows how to negotiate fair and reasonable outcomes from the classroom to the living room to the boardroom. Prior to starting Other Side, Sam enjoyed a corporate marketing career specialising in sponsorships, for close to two decades across Australia and the United Kingdom, she held senior leadership roles for brands including Telstra and PricewaterhouseCoopers and has negotiated over $525 million worth of deals. As a result, she's one of Australia's most skilled commercial negotiators. Sam's negotiator style is strategic, inclusive, pragmatic and fair. She likes to challenge the status quo through curiosity, listening with intent and being a straight shooter. Her thought leadership is practical and accessible so people all over the world can achieve a fair and reasonable exchange in value when they're negotiating. I really enjoyed this discussion with Sam. I started the podcast by asking Sam about her leadership and its beginnings, but enough from me. Over to Sam. Yeah. Hey, Eric. Um, thanks for having me. Uh, it's an interesting question. I've thought about this a lot and I think really where my leadership started was in sport. And, um, you know, I played sport from when I was, I can't even remember, so it's probably three and different kinds of sports. So I guess I learned from other captains and from coaches and things like that. And then as I grew older, then obviously I wanted to be in that role and, uh, and taking on the leadership role in sporting teams that I was part of. So, yeah, so that's really where it all began. And it was brutal. <laughs> It was a tough place. <laughs> good when you're winning, not so good when you when it's um, you know down to you that we haven't been successful. So yeah, I learned a lot through that process. The the next area for discussion, if I may, is asking you how you define leadership. As I have more of these conversations, there are some sayings that run through the definitions, but then there are some things that are unique to the person that I'm, I'm having the chat to. So in that, um, in that context, how do you define leadership, Matt? So for me, it's been interesting. So I think that I was of the ilk that, um, I was pretty much taught to be a manager and that always the buck stopped with me and that everything came down to my shoulders. And I, and it was a really interesting pivot point when I realized, Oh no, actually everyone's responsible for their own area. And that I, my job as a leader is to guide that. Um, but also to get us out of trouble. So to be there to help problem solve, to actually be the sounding board, that sort of thing. So for me, the definition of good leadership is it's around, okay, do we have a vision? What's the goal here? Um, because I found that when, particularly in my years of working in big corporate, I didn't really know what the direction of the business was. You know, there's a strategy on a page and there's some pretty words on the walls and, you know, we have a strap line, but I didn't know what are we trying to do apart from make more money. So, you know, buying into the dream really helps, I think, now that I'm in small business land, it helps people come with you on that on that experience. So, so for me, that's the biggest thing. And then, yeah, not just... Um, you know, not just setting a direction and then going, okay, well, that's it. Everybody does whatever they want. You know, culture is a big part of that and fostering people and whatnot. So there's lots of different parts to it. But a lot of what I do is, you know, that influence piece, obviously, um, and negotiation piece. But I think that those things go hand in glove. You know, you spend so much of your time as a leader, problem solving, um, negotiating and, and whatnot. So in fact, actually, I was looking at a stat yesterday that it's up to about 40% of a leader's time is spent negotiating. So, you know, it's exhausting, but it's okay if we know we've got a team that's behind us and, you know, there's stuff being done and it's not that whole, oh, it's all resting on my shoulders. 
Yeah, that that's that's an interesting one. If forty uh, percent of leaders' time is spent in negotiations, that kind of sounds the um the warning bell that this process is really about people because you're negotiating with other human beings. Obviously, um, I'd like to tease out a little bit because you mentioned there about um not really understanding what the vision was in the bigger corporate space, and and I'll preface this by saying. I am sure there are some big corporates that do the vision thing great and they bring their people along. But um, is it from your experience that in some corporate settings, it's just assumed that those that are doing the doing of running the business and and your, your teams just um, absorb that vision through osmosis somehow that they don't need to be told what it is and they don't need to have that inspirational leader at the head of the place. Have you found that? Because I'm, um, why I ask this is that I often assumed in my um, younger days that everyone just got it as to why the why of the business that you're working in, and I don't think that's a good assumption to make. So, what what's your view there, Sam? I was my career was vast. You know, I was lucky. I worked across Australia and South America and um, and the UK and uh, in very big corporates. So, you know, lots of multinationals and, and then coming into the Australian, um, uh, not so multinational, <laughs> uh, domestic market, uh, it was very different. Like I found, uh, the understanding of the complexity of the business sometimes got tripped up in the strategy. So, you know, complex business, keep the strategy simple is my motto. So I think that whole spaghetti on the wall, you know, we do all these things and it's like, do we, do we need to do all those things? And so there's no cleansing of all of that. So I I believe that from the top down, there is an absolute thought that yes, everybody from the the top to the janitor knows what the direction of the business is. And actually it's, it's one of those things where we don't, we don't have the time to understand it's very lofty. It's very beautiful crafted words, but that's what strategists need, not what the person who's sitting, you know, on the front desk reading people needs. Everybody needs it in plain language. And I think there's possibly a step missed in that in, in big corporate. I get a feeling, and I, I, I place no empirical data here. I don't have evidence to back me. This is just a gut feel that the process that uh, businesses go through to develop their strategic plan documents is a an artistic endeavor that is motherhoody statements. We'd like to be here. This is this is where optimally we should be, and then it's either shelved or there's an assumption that people understand how this this vision was put together and where this gets interesting for me is the implementation bit. So um, even if you were working for a, a big multinational corporate or, or small, small, medium business and you weren't the leader, but you were told here is the process to get to the goals that we need to get to, you're kind of enmeshed in it, but you don't really understand the the bigger picture of it and that the disconnect between implementation of strategy and how grand strategy is actually put together. I think there's a massive gulf there. And I think sometimes it's by design. So I would hazard a guess here, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, that in some corporate settings, and we'll use corporate as an example, you're not going to get the input on strategy from your entire workforce. You're going to have strategy leaders that are in the place that have been employed to use that gray matter yet, if you read some of the literature, if you can access some of the thinking of your entire staff cohort, that there might be people with ideas that are just waiting 
to be realized and we don't access them because of a hierarchy um, in the business. So from your travels, and again, I, I don't want you to mention particular businesses, but do you see that there's a disconnect to some degree between the strategy making and the implementation of that strategy? Absolutely. I think that there's been, um, <clears throat> I don't think they're complicated things to solve. I think, you know, you look at one one of my favourite shows, um, it's a bit old now, but Undercover Boss. Um, I loved that show because, you know, it's hard to do in Australia. I appreciate that because everybody knows the senior leaders in Australia. But I definitely think that there's an opportunity for someone to get into the trenches. You know, when you look at that show, they have a, a CEO has a one week experience in their own business in all different jobs. And they learn that much in one week that they, you know, do amazing things for those staff members. So yes, a lot more listening, a bit more in the trenches. Um, you know, you see great leaders do that. You know, I worked with some incredible people who you'd be sitting there and you'd be like, oh, okay, you're here today. That's fun. And, um, and, and wanting to know, it's just, so many pressures, um, so much um, focused on, okay, we need to deliver for the shareholders and whatnot. So I guess it's probably lost its feeling um, and we get those pulse surveys and staff feedback surveys and whatnot. And it's kind of like, well, we're just looking for the bad stuff. And actually there's a lot of gold in there. Who's looking at the good stuff? And then where's that whole process of top to bottom? You know, we looked at, we saw leaders in the last few years who had, um, all hands meetings from everybody in the organization could get on at nine o'clock and talk about their concerns about COVID and the impact to their family and their jobs and things like that. Um, you know, there's loads of discussion around that in the very first year of COVID. Um, and, and hopefully we can keep a hold of some of that open communication. And I think the other thing is robust discussion. People are scared of having, you know, healthy debate because we haven't been taught how to do that. And we need to debate good ideas we need to debate average ideas and we need to you know the ones that somebody throws in over the fence you're like oh okay that's crazy but let's talk about the crazy as well but yes there's a fear of looking stupid and so I think that's where we get these whole lofty motherhood statements and that's you know that's where it all comes unstuck for me I have found and this is just a, a me perspective here that as I've gotten older I really don't give a crap about what people think of the discussion that I might enter into, as long as it's respectful, I'm going to say what I need to say. And I have no fear of it only because I've lived enough life now that I know that if you don't say your piece in a respectful way, I'm not meaning going guns blazing and um, undermining anyone else's point of view, but to have a considered debate and have a space available, I'm not going to use the word safe space because I hate that concept, just a space where adult human beings can have the discussion is not typical and some businesses do it well and size and sector doesn't really matter, but some don't do it. And I think there's reasons for that. And um, the more you allow those conversations to happen, you've got to diffuse position power and all of the things that go with hierarchies in businesses. And you really don't want potentially if you're a narcissistic or sociopathic leader, you don't want good ideas coming from somewhere else. They need to be seen to be coming from you. Um, I know those leaders exist. We've probably worked for those leaders at some point. I can see you smiling there. So it's everyone's had this experience. But um, yeah, in, interesting perspectives you share. Look, before I forget, and I don't want to not ask you the, the next area, is leader capability. Now, I'm personally more 
um, invested in talking about capabilities because leadership styles have a place, but they're not the the be all and end all from my perspective. And given your work history and the the different countries you've worked in, so you've had cross cultural leadership experience, and that's a whole nother podcast, and we will get to that at some later point. But from your experiences, what would you suge- suggest from from those experiences are key leader capabilities for you, Sam? Mm, it's a good question. I mean, for me, respect is number one. Um, number two is, um, I guess, knowing who you are first is really important. I think that that takes a lot of work. You know, we, we come up through these through these ranks with various different leaders as we've talked about here. Some of them good, some of them not so good. Um, you know, some people that you're sitting across the table from who have poor behaviour, others have fantastic things to learn from and whatnot. Um, sorry, you do learn from the poor behaviour as well. But it's who do I want to be as a leader and then what do I need to get a hand with that to, to be that kind of leader? So I was never fostered, as it were. I wasn't... <clears throat> I sat marketing always sat next to sports, uh, sat next to sales. So, you know, you'd be like, where are the sales guys today? Oh, they're in a training program. <laughs> of course. So, you know, a lot of money is channeled into the people that drive the revenues. And so that, that sort of as a leader you, in, in non-revenue generating areas, you sort of have to find your own way. So I wish that, if, you know, whenever I mentor anybody now or coach anybody now, it's kind of like, okay, well, let's start with you first. Then let's look at how you, um, you know, where are your weaknesses? And people don't really feel comfortable talking about that, unfortunately. And it's, you know, it's, it has to be brutally honest. If I have to achieve X, Y, or Z, then what do I need to learn? And then if I, if, if I want to learn it is the second question. Um, and then if I don't want to learn it, then who can fill that role in my team? And so, you know, we're in, the, in this um, situation at the moment, we've got five generations in the workplace for the first time in history. The collective genius is incredible just with the people sitting around us. So am I able to influence these people? Am I able to facilitate you know, enough questions that I don't have to be the leader all the time and I don't have to be the one coming up with all the great ideas. You said it before, Eric, you know, this is about um, good leadership is about finding those um, th- those pieces of information, challenging the status quo and, and being able to, to manage that and facilitate those things. I mean, I think you should be able to foster healthy debate. I think you should be able to facilitate uncomfortable conversations. And I think you need to be able to just listen, be a bloody good listener and then go, okay, I've listened to everybody. You know, sometimes I sit in a meeting for two hours and don't say anything. And all I'm doing is just watching body language, listening to what's coming out and then trying to distill that down to, okay, what I heard was we've got a problem here here we've got a great thing here and we've got some actions that need to be done over here right when do we need to do those things by and not doing it in a way that oh, I am the smartest person here because I just listened to all that and did that <laughs> it's about me going okay I actually and I could be wrong you know this is a hypothesis that I have just come up with as a, you know a scientific experiment in a meeting or a workshop um, and then okay well let's work it out if I summarize that and you said no okay great well what which part of that Eric isn't right where do we need to fine-tune it and then go around for a second round but if we just keep discussing stuff and and letting it all happen that's really a weakness in a leadership group and it's and it's not fun you know I really think that leadership should be about having fun and celebrating you know little things as well as the big things so yeah there's a lot of things in that little mix there but um but at the end of the day you know that you're doing a good job when you know you're having a good time staff want to be in your team and the results are there 
Yeah, I, I can't disagree with that. I, I would ask you then, um, again, from your experiences, and we'll we'll go as current as, as you'd like, I guess. What are you seeing at the moment that are key leadership issues from your perspective that you're seeing out there? Is Is there a set of them? Is there one that's overridingly taking up your thinking in terms of what, what you're seeing out there? There's a lot of fear. You know, there's a lot of discussion about what's going to happen. There's a big discussion about what's happening in February or March next year. Is there is Australia going to fall off a cliff? Um, uh, their job's going to be slashed. You know, there's rumours about, um, you know, the more redundancies in history that are going to happen in February, March. And I don't know if you're hearing this as well, but I'm just like, really? That just seems crazy to me. Um, but I think it's a balance of there's so many roles that have changed, businesses that have evolved in the last three to five years because of necessity that we actually have whole industries that are in a different spot or selling different things or making different things, offering different things than they were, you know, three to five years ago. So, so that has to evolve. So, and I guess we're also seeing that changeover of generations. So, you know, the, the Gen Ys are coming in who have a much better handle on work-life balance. <laughs> they will not stand for the rubbish that we were told. I mean, I loved when I was, I think I was in my late 20s and um, and this young woman sat next to me and the boss came out and he was like, right, I need you to do this by five o'clock. And she just turned around and without, you know, being um, combative, she just said, well, what would you like me to stop doing so that I can get that done? And I remember thinking, oh my goodness, are you serious? And I, I loved that moment. And I wrote about it in my first book, actually, because she taught me that what the way I had been taught to do things was wrong, the way that I just slogged it out and kept working um, and get, got it done no matter what. So, so that's, where, that's the leaders that we're talking to now. So I think that those things are really shuffling the deck. Yeah, no, I, I hadn't heard about the um, potential calamity or loss of employment into next year. I guess if if the current financial circumstances get more pressing, it might change the the job outlook. But I haven't heard of it. I haven't heard lately of anything too catastrophic. But remember, we're coming out of the COVID period, so I think people are more hypersensitive to what might happen with the businesses that they're in. But no. That's um that's a, that's an interesting interesting set of perspectives there. The um just on your last point about um really putting it back on your boss around what um what is a priority versus what do you need me to finish by what point? I I think that happens fairly regularly where sometimes there's that disconnect between what's happening operationally and what what do you prioritize as deadlines and if you don't have a clear understanding of that or if that's not um, very clearly marked out by your uh, direct supervisor or the the CEO of a business, then it, it's hard not to just do all the bits that you need to do to get the day out of the way. Then someone comes at you at four o'clock and goes, I need this brief read and, and you know some kind of minute or something coming out of that within that hour before you go. Because I think the assumption is you'll stay back, however long you need to stay back to get it done. And um, it's a shitty way to manage people, but I think it happens a lot and people don't arc up because of, for fear of losing a job or not being considered for promotion down the track, if that's your bent. I mean, not some people view work as a very functional thing, go in, do your time, go home, and sort of that's the end of it. But for those of us that don't or you're you're young and you want a career pathway, 
I would suggest to you, I would, I would suggest out loud that the person that you just described before, was she, um, did she have more experience in the role? Like had she been in the world of work a fairly long time before she said what she said, or was she fairly young and just put it back on her boss? It was young. She was young. Okay. Okay. That's pretty ballsy. Yeah. But she had a great mentor and and I think that's, you know, that's Gen Y. That's, that's what they've been. They've come into the workforce with say what you think, um, you know, and, and ask these questions. And I love it so much. I mean, I think about, um, you know, the, the downside to just getting it done is actually when we get to the end of the quarter or the end of the year, when the boss says, okay, well, let's look at your KPIs or your, you know, OKRs or whatnot and how you've tracked, you'll be off. You will be off track on those because you've done so much stuff that everybody helped you with. And the reason why you didn't push back was because, oh, well, you didn't want to look, you know, be difficult and you didn't want to not be nice and, you know, didn't want to be unhelpful. And it's like, well, actually, you just kind of shot yourself in the foot there for a potential development because you, you, yes, you are a high achiever and you want to get stuff done, but you've actually gone, hang on, my, my OKRs, my KPIs aren't that. So either you reassess those every quarter or you actually go, you know what, I, I can do this much. And actually, you know what, I've got a family at home. I've got sofa time to sit on. I've got Netflix to watch, whatever it is that it should, we've got to not find excuses to not be at work. It's like, I go to work for this this purpose and I want to achieve these things and yes of course I will do my um do my best as a team member to help in in times where there's a need for it but those times shouldn't be the the norm and that's sort of where we got into in those 80s 90s noughties was like yeah let's just we'll just hang out <laughs> if I'm reflecting this the right way that the world of work is changing and the different generations that are coming through have different um sets of expectations and I, I think there's some friction though between those groups in the workplace as well. I've, I've had a few guests make that point to me quite strongly that there are some um, uh, bedrock things that Gen X will push that Gen Y don't. And there's, there's the tension there. And I, I can understand why that tension exists because the, the conversation around why you go to work and what value do you draw from work is very different even within those groups, let alone across those groups. And does does work really define who you are? Is work just a functional thing? Like I, I've, I haven't had that conversation out loud with anyone and this is me sort of again musing about what what the world of work means to some people. And um, I, I, I know people and you probably know people that don't let themselves be defined by anything that they do. They do their own defining of who they are and, Work is just one of those things to pay the bills, whereas others, and I'm thinking here about those high-achieving CEOs and general managers and your entrepreneurs, that the business is in their DNA and it's a reflection on them. So it it um, it leads to some interesting conversations around why we do what we do uh, as leaders. And it this leads into the next area, if I can, Sam, with you is if we can agree that we're in a post-COVID situation, now we're leaving the worst of that um, event behind, the pandemic behind, do you think there's been a shift in how we think about leadership post-COVID or did it highlight some things that were there that we didn't really want to talk about? What 
where are you on that spectrum or I, do you think it's something else entirely? Mm, good question. I mean, I feel like I'm so tired of COVID. <laughs> I'm so tired of it. But it's, but, you know, it is the biggest event potentially of our whole lives. So I can't be too tired of it. Um, I, I think, yeah, it's changed us forever. You know, we can't, we were just talking last night about how it was one of those moments in time that everybody was locked everybody was in this place where it's like okay this is different and then when we're coming out even when we're coming out of it it was like oh no I don't want to go out oh gosh and so it was this whole excuse type thing or easy to stay home and to to be in this little safe little bubble and um, I guess what what we were talking about yesterday was interesting insofar as there's a, 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 I do feel that there's a, a lot of fear. We are a, a nation that loves security. Um, you know, we're in a place where climate change is, is real. There's so much stuff happening that it's like, whoa, this is scary stuff. You know, bushfires this year, floods next year, um, madness, crazy drought, you know, all these different things happening to us, which means all of a sudden the things that we find easy to find safety in is insurance and things like that so now those premiums have gone crazy um everything everything is costing 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 and it's just wildly out of control so so there's this overarching maybe it's not fear maybe it's kind of like oh it's this you know you hear so much about overwhelm it's because it does feel like there's a lot out of control still but i guess it's probably if we go back to the question we are in that place where everything has been smashed on the ground and there is an opportunity to rebuild it however we like. And I really thought that we would not be ants running into the city again. But, you know, I sit out, go to the dog park in the morning and I see all the cars on the bridge going into the city and I go, oh, no, it's back. So I guess it's finding that, well, where is it? We're still having conversations about return to work. We're still having conversations about how do you build a culture when you've got half the people at home and five people in the office and things like that. How do you be creative? You know, all of these challenges and, and then organisations mandating that people come back and it's like, whoa, that is not good leadership. So, you know, give me a reason to come and I'll be there. But tell me I have to. Mm-mm. And that's that's the the human condition now is to push back and go, I don't think so. So, you know, as a leader, we're coming out of this having to, you know, negotiate lots of things. We're having to influence outcomes we have, and people. We're having to have vastly different conversations and they are uncomfortable and people don't like that. And that's my jam. That's where I live. <laughs> yeah, uh, look, I, I uh, without mentioning the organisation, I'll, I'll just say, a few businesses in the finance sector were um, were made the news, uh, and I heard this on I think it was ABC Radio some some months ago now that there was a demand that fifty percent fifty percent of your time had to be in office, and then you negotiate the other time because we needed you in in the office. Now a lot of these roles are not public facing, so one of the queries I would have as, as someone that doesn't understand that sector at all is if these workers or your workforce are back of house crunching numbers using computers you could do those roles anywhere they don't have to be physically in an office and I I have a feeling that there's a a group of leaders investors people that have got money tied into businesses that want the old structures back in place now that things are supposedly back to normal. And I fear that there is a lack of recognition of the fear that COVID caused the 
um, that that uh, taking away of, of your what you thought was safety in terms of the world of work, let alone your own health and the health of your family and so on, because people had uh, people died, people lost loved ones, um, people got sick and got long COVID and are still recovering from the process. Uh, some were near death and beat it, but still aren't 100% to what they were beforehand. And I don't for a second think that that's been ignored. I think there was the in some businesses is a lack of recognition that that went on. And it's almost like, well, we've been there and done that. So let's just get back to things as they were. And I get the impression um, employees and, and good team members will walk and vote with their feet and look for other opportunities and this idea of staying in roles now for very short amounts of time and then moving around to where you'll get a better benefit is something I wouldn't have, you know, 20 years ago, people told me as I job hopped, you don't do that. You got to stay somewhere for five years and you got to prove your loyalty. Um, yeah. I've, I've always had an issue with this loyalty um, discussion, not that loyalty is a bad thing, but you need to do what you need to do for your career, just like your employers did on the come up as well. So I don't think maybe loyalty is not the right um, terminology there. It's commitment to an organization is a good thing, but can you get really good productivity and good thinking out of a person in a year, 18 months in a role and then get some new blood in and that turnover, it's not necessarily a negative thing. Well, mm. what, what are your thoughts there, mate? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I'm a consultant, so we jet in, we solve problems and we go away again. And that's fantastic. I love it because I don't get caught up in the politics. Um, th there's no real need or very few companies that need full-time negotiators like me. So yeah, I think that that's, it's a beautiful gift of, okay, someone's here for three years or however long they decide to say 18 months, as you say, and they, you know, sprinkle fairy dust and everything's amazing. And then we go, great. Okay. Good luck. Bye-bye. You know, that whole thing about don't train people because they'll leave you. And it's like, what? <laughs> if they leave you, then help them go. You know, they'll come back to you or if they want to, or, you know, as they evolve and whatnot. So there's so many great opportunities through that whole, whole um, seeing diff business differently. I thought when I started in my, um, in my um, current career, I thought, oh, well, why wouldn't everybody do this at my stage of their career? You know, you've learned some stuff, you've worked in some incredible places and awesome businesses and, um, yeah, seen so many things. Um, I'm kind of wasted sitting in one box. So for, for me to be able to work in, you know, 30 or 50 different businesses across a year, um, how great. And then, you know, what's left is the arms and legs, the people that are coming up that can execute those things. You don't want me executing. I'm too expensive. <laughs> so um, I, I guess, but you know, you want people to be able to do, know what to do. Here's a strategy. Here's a plan. Uh, we built this with you and now execute it. And then you learn through the execution piece and then, you know, you go on to something else. And hopefully one day, you know, not everybody's a strategist and, and not, a, and as I say, people like to be in that steady role of execution execution um, but we want them to evolve through that process as well if it's the same people sitting in the same cubicle for the next five to ten years how could you possibly evolve yeah can't can't disagree with any of that I think the when you mentioned there around why wouldn't someone do the kind of work that you do and be in consulting world and go from contract to contract in different businesses that 
has an appeal to some, but for others, it's the worst nightmare because of this idea about stability of income. And um, it's always, there's always a risk there. I think those that really do consulting well have a formula down for how to generate work and how to maintain their sanity as they do it because the you know, contracts will vary in size and complexity. And so that 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 world, I think, really does appeal to people that like risk uh, taking uh, what not not pure risk. It's more a um, a guesstimate of where things are at, and so it's not really that risky. It's more how do you set the system up so that you can keep finding work? And some consultants do that extremely well. Some not so well. I've I've met a few consultants that just it seems like they just get tapped on the shoulder one contract to another, and that's a good thing too because I think it's your not you particularly, Sam, but the ability to do good work gets you gets your name out there and, and that world is quite a competitive world and for someone like me looking at consultants I'm like nah, how do you how do you do it and not feel unstable and not you know where's your next paycheck coming from but that it could that could denote my age and my um my vintage here that to me it's not um the most stable of things but it's it's a different career pathway and i understand why some people go down that path but um it's it's an interesting one i i'm not i wouldn't have said i was a risk taker i didn't i didn't leave corporate to set up a consultancy i sort of bumbled my way out i was like oh here's an opportunity for me after you know 20 years in a corporate career to actually go stop what do i want to do and yeah i it wasn't until I was saying to a mate of mine, I've probably been doing it for about a year, and I was like, "You should come and do this stuff. It's fun." And she said, "No, thank you. I like a paycheck. I know I like to know that it's coming." I said, "Yeah, yeah. I miss a paycheck, <laughs> and I miss my corporate Amex." <laughs> sure. No. So that was me putting a label on it from my perspective. If you don't see it as risky, then that that that's the um that's the cultural difference for those of us that like to get the paycheck. It's the stability yeah. of knowing that that's coming, whereas you in that world you're like well yeah i'll get my paycheck but it'll come randomly it'll be for work that i want to do in different organizations and it's not more of the same so i can see the the pluses and minuses in both i I think it just takes a certain type of person that you you would view what you're doing not as risky whereas someone like me would view it as risky and go that's crazy i wouldn't do that but that doesn't mean what you're doing is wrong it doesn't mean what i'm doing is wrong it's just a, a i think it's a a preference that we've got and that look that that's a whole nother set of discussions and, and one day I'll get there because I, I I have a feeling you crazy kids in the consulting space, the entrepreneurs, there's something that differentiates you from the um corporate not for profit leader in how you view the world of work. And I, I think there's a fruitful discussion to be had there about what do you learn as leaders in those different worlds in those different contexts hence why i do the the podcast so before you go sam uh final two areas to bring up if i may the nature versus nurture debate are leaders born or are they made uh absolutely made i am a product of that <laughs> you know i grew up in a, in a time when we were seen and not heard you know we had to answer the telephone and that was scary entering the door forget it carrying the chip and dip bowl around the barbecue <laughs> was scary because someone might talk to me and then you know growing up and then having to find my voice and being able to be even just heard in a meeting you know i 
I, don't, I have a rule that there's no one in a meeting unless they speak um, because they're brought to that meeting for a reason. So, um, I, yeah, I definitely think you can you, you can decide what sort of leader you want to be and then get the right people around you to, to foster that. And you just see great things. You know, you see not every single person is great all of the time, but if you can take a piece from this person and that person and go, oh, that's amazing. And I'm going to try that on for me and see if it works. So, yeah, and, and I've done all the wrong things, you know, um, and I've done all some of the good things as well. So I, I enjoy seeing people um, uh, learn how to enjoy what they do to find themselves. You know, Sarah, who works with me quite closely, when she first started coming, working with me, I'd known her for years across the other side of the table. Oh, sorry about the pun. Um, and But she didn't see herself as a negotiator. And I was like, really? Let's just unpack that. And so then, you know, over the course of the first sort of six months working together, she really saw herself as a negotiator. We call her our renegotiation expert. And um you know, just incredible transformation of her confidence levels to know, okay, I am really good at this thing. And I know I'm good at these other three things. So together, well, I've just elevated myself and I feel so much better in, in you know, saying what I do and, and, and the way I go about what I do. So for me as a leader, absolutely, it's, it's nurture. Every day I learn how to do this. I don't wake up one day and go, yes, that's it. Same as negotiating, you know, I'm a master negotiator. What does that mean? It means that every day I practice and I don't always get it right. And I, and I, um, you know, sometimes people teach me things, um, you know, that I was like, whoa, wasn't expecting that. And I love that. So absolutely an, an evolving mastery of leadership is, is always on the cards. Very few have gone to, yes, it's absolutely made. Um, and I, I like hearing that because I'm, I'm a fence sitter. I, I think it's about an 80-20 split for me. I think there are some human beings that ha have some innate um, capabilities, leadership capabilities that they, they foster because it's just part of their DNA. And yes, you have to have opportunity. And then there's the discussion around, well, if you've got the environment to flourish and you choose to be a leader, then um, you're, you're sort of uh, building on natural skill sets. Whereas the 80%, yeah, I think if people are willing to be trained and go through experiences and, and uh, professionally develop themselves, yes, you can get some great leaders from that process too so yeah interesting response and to end the podcast sam if you could go back to a younger version of yourself what would you say to a younger sam about uh being an, an effective leader oh that would be a long discussion <laughs> i'm trying to think about what point i would go back because i think I was so lucky to have so many fantastic roles. And as I talked about before, in different countries and with different people, I guess it's probably that bridge when you know some stuff and you start to get a bit itchy and dangerous. Like I remember not getting selected for a leadership program and going, damn it, so angry. I was so disappointed. Like I'm ready. And then one of my really good mates, he was in another business and didn't get selected either. And anyway, fast forward two or three years later, and we both got selected for the leadership programs in our businesses. And we had a coffee and we're like, oh, maybe we weren't ready. <laughs> so I think, you know, what I'd say to, to that sort of um, early 30s, Sammy would be, you know, don't shy away, keep pushing, 
but one of the things I needed to learn was gray. So I wasn't always a good negotiator, let's be honest. Um, you know, I would always try and push really hard to get a good outcome for my side. And whether that was me or the business I represented, and that has problems everywhere. <laughs> it's good because you ask, it's bad because you're pushing and it's all about just me. You know, I believe in a fair and reasonable exchange in value. So, you know, you want to be proud of who you are when you wake up the next day. So, so I think if I could fast track my learning gray, as we talk about period, that would be great because I think that I would have enjoyed some of the big negotiations that I were, was in and, and privileged to be part of. You know, some of these negotiations went on for 18 months and you get to know people really well through those processes and I was very focused on the people stuff which was excellent but then when we you know sometimes when we sat down at the table it'd be like oh okay now we're in this little stoush and and it doesn't have to be a fight so I think that that's probably to, to fast track to where I would find more joy um who knows if I, I'm a bit worried to, to talk to my younger self because I may not end up where I am today and I love doing what I do so so that's yeah it's a double-edged sword there so sorry I'm but, no that's hilarious <laughs> I mean that you don't want to uh, impact on the space-time continuum for you yeah uh, look 100 percent uh that that particular question and thank you for the response uh I ask it because I really like seeing the gray matter to cover when a guest is going back and oh, I'd say this, this, and this, and a few, and you're one of a few that has said, well, I'm not sure which time period I'd go back to. And that, that says a lot to me, even though you're not saying it in terms of, well, where were the bits in a career that were light bulb moments or game changes for me? And you've, you've, um, kind of let the cat out of the bag in terms of the negotiating stuff that it's an ongoing learning process and it's uh it's um good to hear from some someone that their ongoing practice is something that is something that has to evolve over time and I, i i take that for me and my own leadership practice and i see it in others that you're never going to always get it right but you learn from the shit that goes wrong and you learn from the stuff that goes right and hopefully that gets you making better decisions and thinking more clearly and laterally as time goes on but i think it's a time uh thing there as well i'm not saying young people younger people in the workforce can't have that level of maturity but i've rarely found it um that it covers off on everything because until you've experienced some life in whatever world of work you choose to go in you don't have those experiences to draw from so um, but you know, if if someone's out there listening, they can prove me wrong. Then please come on to the uh, to the podcast, and we'll have a chat. Sam, thank you for your time, mate. That was great. Thanks, Eric. I appreciate it. Yeah, it was a good chat. Cheers. That concludes our podcast today. I'd like to thank Sam for her time and sharing her insights from a leadership and strategic negotiator perspective with us today on the podcast. If you like what you're listening to or watching on this podcast, please drop a like, subscribe to help us grow the channel. And as always, have a great day, rest of your week, and we'll catch everyone on the next episode of Talking Leadership TV.